Good evening. It's good to be back together tonight. Appreciate this time that we've been able to spend in worship together. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be continuing our study of the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in Mark chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 1 in our study. And Lord willing, we're going to end up in chapter 3 and verse number 6. I bet that JT's really thankful that, you know, there's only one verse up there. The last verse, Mark chapter 3 and verse 6, which kind of summarized the whole thing. You didn't have to read an entire chapter. I spared you on that one. But thankful to be back together tonight. While you're turning to Mark chapter 2, I think there's one thing that we need to mention before we get into our study tonight. And that's the fact that we're celebrating today, the last Sunday, that Michael is serving in his position as the youth minister. I think we need to take some time to bestow honor to whom honor is due on both him and Amber, the sacrifices that he made. I realize I only got to see just a short time of his time in serving as the youth minister, but it's been amazing for me to see the love that he has for our kids, to see both of their concerns for the group being not only connected to one another, but also connected to God, connected to the truths of Scripture. He's put in a lot of hard work, and I think we all agree in saying that he's done a great job. So if you get the chance to talk to him tonight, you know, next week, Jacob Coleman's going to be coming, and we're prayerful for that. We're looking forward to that, but tonight we also want to thank Michael and Amber for the great job that they have done. Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse number 1. Whenever we think about the Gospel of Mark and how we've been studying the Gospel of Mark so far, going all the way back to the beginning of Jesus' public ministry in verses 14 and 15 of Mark chapter 1, we've seen Jesus' popularity among the common people rise to the surface of the text a number of different times. Jesus is very well known. Jesus is very well loved. Jesus is very popular among common average people of that time. They wanted to hear what Jesus had to say. We're going to see that as we walk through this text throughout the entire second chapter and into the third chapter of Mark. They wanted to not only see Jesus' healing, but those who were sick or those who were oppressed by demons wanted to experience Jesus' healing for themselves. Jesus was very well known, very well loved, very popular among the common people of his day. You know what's so ironic about that? That even though Jesus was very popular among common people, it was the religious people who stood opposed to him. It was the religious people, the religious leaders who stood opposed to Jesus. Whether we're talking about the Sadducees who were mostly in the temple. Whether we're talking about the Pharisees who were mostly in the synagogues. Whether we're talking about the scribes. Whether we're talking about the chief priest. Whether we're talking about the elders. They were the ones who rejected Jesus. They were the ones who were constantly questioning Jesus. They were the ones who were constantly complaining about Jesus. And that's something that we're going to see in our text tonight. I believe that's the main idea of our text tonight. The title of our sermon this evening is The Complaints of the Religious. We're going to watch as Jesus does what Jesus does. We're going to watch as Jesus performs miracles and teaches amazing lessons. And as He does that, those who were considered to be the religious elite 
are going to offer four complaints against him. And I want to suggest to you tonight that these complaints are not unique to these religious leaders. These complaints are not unique to them in that specific time. I believe that these are complaints that we can even see among religious people today. So let's think about these four different complaints of the religious beginning in chapter 2 verses 1 through 12 where the first complaint against Jesus is, can you really forgive sin? Do you really have the authority to forgive people's sins? You go to Mark the second chapter and you begin in verse number 1, you find Jesus returning to the city of Capernaum. We said in Mark chapter 1 and verse 38 that Jesus went to various cities to preach the gospel to people in various places, but now He's returning back home. He's returning back to the city of Capernaum, and when it was reported that He was at home, notice His popularity. Verse number 2 says that many were gathered together so that there was no room not even at the door. As Jesus was in this house, people were so packed in there that people were flooding out into the streets. Jesus took the opportunity to teach them about God. To teach them about God's will for their lives. If you skip down to chapter 2 and verse 6, notice that this group is not only made up of common people, but also the religious leaders. The Bible says some of the scribes were sitting there. Luke gives us a little bit more detail in Luke the 5th chapter when he says that there were Pharisees and scribes from every village throughout Galilee and Judea and also from the city of Jerusalem. As Jesus is teaching this large group of people who were packed inside of this house, Mark tells us that there were four friends carrying their paralyzed friend on a bed. And of course, when they came to the house and they saw how packed it was, they realized they weren't going to be able to carry their friend into the house. There was no way they were going to be able to bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus. But they didn't give up like maybe I would have or maybe you would have. Notice they were so diligent in bringing their friend to Jesus, they went up on top of the roof. They dug a hole big enough to drop down not only the paralytic, but the paralytic lying on his bed. They dropped him down in front of Jesus. And when Jesus saw their faith in verse number 5, He said to the paralytic words that we should all want to hear. Words that we should want to hear more than anything else. Jesus takes care of His biggest problem first by saying, this is verse 5, Son, your sins are forgiven. What a blessing it is to hear that message. But that message is what begins this section about conflict as we look in verse 6. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, and when they heard this, they were questioning in their hearts. They weren't verbalizing anything out loud. They weren't doing anything. They weren't saying anything. At this point, they're just thinking in their minds. Of course, throughout this text, we're going to see this rise up. We're going to see this continue to get worse. This is going to go from the inside to the outside. But here they're questioning in their hearts, and here's the question, verse 7. Why does this man speak like that he is blaspheming who can forgive sins but God alone it's the complaint that you see up on the screen Jesus can, can you really forgive sin why is he speaking like this why is he making this claim he's claiming to do something that only God can do he's blaspheming because who can forgive sin except God alone that's the complaint how does Jesus respond to it Jesus responds to it by demonstrating that He has the authority to forgive sin. 
Jesus responds to it by healing the paralytic. And by healing the paralytic, everyone was able to see that yes, He does have the authority to forgive sin. If Jesus can look at this paralyzed man and say, Son, take up your bed, rise, and walk, He certainly has the authority to look at him and say, Son, your sins are forgiven you. This complaint, Jesus, can you really forgive sin? Have you ever heard somebody make that complaint before? Have you ever made that complaint yourself? I would suggest that when we hear this complaint today, it comes from a different motivation than what we see in the first 12 verses of Mark chapter 2, but yet it's the very same complaint. Sometimes we're tempted to look at our own lives. We think about the sins that we've committed. We think about the wrong things that we've done. We think about how far we've strayed away from Jesus over the last few months. And we're tempted to think, Jesus, can you really forgive me? Can you really forgive me for the sins that I've committed? Can you really forgive me for how far I've strayed? Can you actually bring me back to yourself? But then maybe it's not us looking at ourselves. We'll talk about this more in just a second. Maybe it's us looking at other people. We know their past. We know the sins that they've committed. And when we see them attempt to come to the Lord, we think something like, can Jesus really forgive that kind of person? I mean, I see how Jesus can forgive me, but forgive this person over here? Jesus, can you really do that? This complaint is still alive and well even today in the hearts of religious people. How should we respond to that complaint? I want to suggest to you that we should respond to that complaint in the very same way that the paralytic did. By trusting in, by believing and embracing the words of verse number 5, Son, daughter, your sins are forgiven you. We have to realize it really doesn't matter how many sins we've committed. It doesn't matter how far we've strayed. As long as we're willing to come back to the Lord, Jesus is willing to forgive us. Jesus has the authority. He has the power to forgive the sins that we've committed. We have to learn to trust that, not just for ourselves, but also for other people. When someone makes the decision to come to the Lord or to come back to the Lord, Jesus has the authority and He has the willingness to forgive that person's sins. To offer to them the same words as that He offered to the paralytic, Son, daughter, your sins are forgiven you. Complaint number two. As we move into verses 13 through 17, the Jewish religious leaders push back on Jesus by saying, Why do you associate with these kind of people? I mean, when we pick up in Mark chapter 2 and verse number 14, Jesus comes across a man by the name of Levi. We know him more commonly by another name, the name Matthew. We believe that he's the writer of the first gospel that we have in the New Testament, the gospel that we studied out of together this morning in Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. But Jesus comes to Levi, and Levi's a tax collector. He's sitting at his tax booth. One thing we need to understand about tax collectors, I'm sure you've heard this before, is that they were despised in this time. They were absolutely hated, especially by those who were Jews. Not only did they work for the Romans, 
But they also cheated people. When they came to collect your tax, they would add a a specific percentage on top of that. They would take the percentage on top and put it in their own pockets. People hated tax collectors. But yet when Jesus passes by this tax booth and He sees Levi, He sees Matthew, He offers to him the same invitation that we saw a few weeks ago in Mark chapter 1, verses 16-20. through The same invitation that He offered to Peter, Andrew, James, and John, the four fishermen, two words, Follow me. What did Levi do? Not only did he accept that invitation to follow Jesus, but he invited Jesus to come over to his house and to recline at his table. He prepared a great feast for Jesus. Look at 15. As he reclined at table in his house. Pause. Here we have a Jewish religious leader, someone who is this new teacher sitting at the table in the house of a tax collector. But that's not the only thing that we find here. He was reclining at table in Levi's house, but then look at this. Notice the word, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and His disciples, for there were, again, many who followed Him. Jesus doing that, Jesus sitting at at Matthew's table and, and associating with these different sinners and tax collectors brings up the second complaint. It's in verse number 16. The scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that He was eating, with sinners and tax collectors said to his disciples why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners Jesus if you're some teacher from God why are you associating with those kind of people do you not know who they are do you not know what kind of sins that they've committed why are you number one in a tax collector's house why are you sitting down and reclining at a tax collector's table why are you surrounded by all these sinful people if you were actually a teacher from God you would be like us If you were actually a righteous person, you would be like us, and you wouldn't be willing to touch people like that with a ten-foot pole. How does Jesus respond? His response is actually beautiful in verse number 17. When Jesus heard this complaint, He said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners Parallel gospel accounts say that he came to call sinners to repentance. Jesus, why are you sitting and associating and investing in people like that? They're not worth your time. Jesus says, okay, think about it. When do you go to the doctor? Unless you're going for like your yearly checkup, you usually don't go to the doctor whenever you're well. You usually don't go to the doctor when nothing's wrong with you or nothing's hurting or you're not sick. Those who go to the doctor have a sickness that they need taken care of. Jesus says, I've come into this world not for those who think they're well. That's the Pharisees. That's the religious leaders who are complaining against Jesus. They don't see any need. They don't see themselves in spiritual need. They don't see themselves as spiritually sick. They have everything that they need. They are completely well. Jesus says, I didn't come for you. He says, I came for those who are willing to admit their sickness. I came for those who are willing to admit their brokenness. And the motivation is important here. Jesus is not just associating with tax collectors and sinners for the fun of it. He's not sitting at their table because He approves of the lifestyles that they've lived in the past. He's not associating with them because He wants to become more like them. No, He's sitting down at their table. He's sitting in Levi's house. He's associating with these different people because He wants to bring them to repentance. 
He wants them to have spiritual life. He wants them to have the opportunity to connect with God. Have you ever heard this complaint? Have you ever made this complaint yourself? Think about those who we would deem as outcasts or sinners in our society. Those who are living in adultery. Those who are committing fornication. Homosexuals. Those who are transgender. Maybe those who are poor and living off the government. Well, why in the world would a good Christian associate with a person like that? Why would a good Christian walk into a house of a person like that and sit at someone's table? I don't know about you, but I wouldn't touch them with a ten-foot pole. Have you ever heard something like that before? Have you ever said or thought that before? How should we respond to that complaint? Well, I think we should respond in the same way that Jesus did. As Christians, we should have a willingness to associate with those who are outcasts of our society. As Christians, we should have a willingness to associate with those who we would label as the worst of all sinners. We should be willing to go into their houses. We should be willing to sit down at their table. We should be willing to look them in the eye and have conversations with them. We should be willing to invest ourselves in them. But remember the motivation. It's not because we approve of their lifestyle. It's not because we want to become more like them. We're not just doing it for the fun of it. No, we associate with people who are outsiders. We associate with those who we would deem as sinners so that they can have the opportunity to know Jesus. So that they can have the opportunity to come to repentance. Listen, if saints never sit down at the table with sinners, sinners will never have the opportunity to become saints. Do we realize that? If we don't associate with those who are on the fringes of society, those who we might consider gross, those who are worse sinners than everybody else, they're never going to have the opportunity to have a relationship with Jesus, to access the forgiveness that only comes from Jesus. If Christians do not invest in sinners, we're watching them go to hell. There's only two options there. And we have to choose which one we're going to participate in. And so when we hear... This kind of complaint, why do you associate with those kind of people? No good Christian would ever associate with that kind of person. We need to respond like Jesus. We need to place value in people. We need to place value in people's souls. To associate with those who are sick so that they can be healed. To associate with those who are sinners so that they might come to repentance. Complaint number three. In chapter 2, verses 18 through 22, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, look at Jesus and they complain, why don't you do what everybody else does? Why aren't you like everybody else? I mean, that's the complaint that comes immediately in verse number 18. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Fasting back in this time, and even in our time today, I think it's something that we still should participate in. Fasting was a religious experience where you didn't eat for a certain meal or for a certain time. And you would take the time that you would invest in, which in the first century, this would be a lot of time, preparing the meal, eating the meal, cleaning up the meal, and you would invest that time in your relationship with God. You would invest that time in prayer, in Bible study, in meditation, thinking about spiritual things, immersing yourself in spiritual things. And whenever you get hungry, when your stomach starts to growl, it should make you think about how hungry you are for God. 
how you hunger and thirst for righteousness, like the Bible talks about in Matthew chapter 5. And so we find in 18 that John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And the people came and said to Jesus, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Can you see the complaint there? Why aren't you doing what everybody else does? Here's John's disciples, they're fasting. Here's the Pharisees, they're fasting, but you're not, and we want to know why that is. How does Jesus respond to that complaint? Notice he doesn't respond by saying, well, we just, we just don't like fasting. Or we like to eat, and so we're not going to fast. Jesus doesn't respond by saying, you know, I didn't really think about that. We don't really have a reason why we're not fasting. We're, we're just not doing it. There, there's really no purpose. We, we just don't feel like doing it. Now, as you read verse 19 down to verse 22, Jesus gives two different reasons why he and his disciples were not fasting. First, the, the first reason that he gives is that this was a time of joy. He uses the idea of a bridegroom at a wedding, and he basically asks the question, are you going to fast while you're with a bridegroom at a wedding during this time of joy? And of course, the answer is no, but whenever the bridegroom leaves, then you're going to have time to fast. Jesus says, I'm with my disciples right now. They only had a limited of time together. It was a time of joy. It was a time of learning. It was a time of growth. Jesus says, we're not going to fast during this time, but eventually I'm going to be taken away, and then the time will come when... My disciples will fast. It's not that we're opposed to doing it. We're just not doing it right now. And there's a reason for that. In verse 21 and 22, Jesus wants to demonstrate that He's bringing a new way. Jesus is bringing newness. He uses two different illustrations to make the same point that when you mix new with old, you don't get good things. You get destruction. If you put an old piece of cloth, if you put a new piece of cloth rather on an old garment, he says it's not going to work out. In 22, he says if you put new wine into old wineskins, it's not going to work out. Jesus says, I'm, we're not fasting because I want you to recognize that I am bringing something new. He's not just another sect. He's not just another group, but he is bringing something that is completely new. They ask the question, why don't you do what everybody else does? And Jesus gives them very valid reasons. You ever heard that complaint before? Have you ever made that complaint yourself? Again, I think it comes from a different perspective, but yet it's still the same complaint. Have you ever seen individuals look at the Lord's church and, and ask the question, why aren't you doing what everybody else does? Hey, why don't you all have musical instruments like everybody else does? Why don't you take the Lord's Supper periodically, like once a quarter, or once every six months, or once a year like everybody else does? Why don't you believe that the sinner's prayer is the moment where a person's soul is saved like everybody else does? Why don't you have women preachers? Why don't you have women leading in your assembly like everybody else does? Everybody else is doing this. This group is doing it. This group is doing it. Why aren't you doing it? How should we respond to that? Our response has to be more than saying, well, that's just the way we've always done it. Our response has to be more than saying, well, that's just tradition. It's, it's the way that our group has always done it, and so we're going to continue to do it that way. No, we need to be prepared to say that there are actually reasons why we don't do what everyone else does. For instance, we don't use musical instruments. They're absent in our worship services. Why? Because they're absent in the worship of the early church throughout the pages of the New Testament. 
We don't have women leading in our assemblies because of the gender roles that are described in passages like 1 Corinthians 14 or 1 Timothy chapter 2. We don't believe that the sinner's prayer is the moment of salvation because Scripture very clearly teaches in 1 Peter 3 and verse 21 that baptism doth now save us. Not the removal of the filth from the flesh, but the appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We take the Lord's Supper every single Lord's Day. Why? Because in Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, that's what the disciples came together to do. They came together on the first week in order to break bread, in order to partake of the Lord's Supper together. And so when we hear this complaint, why don't you do what everyone else does? We have to be prepared to say, here are the reasons. Here are the reasons that we aren't like everybody else. We want to follow Scripture. We want to be the church that we read about in the New Testament. And then finally, number four, the last complaint that we see in this text, which goes from chapter 2 and verse 23 to the end of our study in chapter 3 and verse 6, is why are you doing what is not lawful? Why are you doing what is not right? This section can be divided up into two different parts. The first part is found in verse 23, verse number 28. Actually, both stories take place on the Sabbath day. It was the Sabbath day in verse number 23. Jesus and His disciples were traveling. They were walking through some grain fields. And as they were walking, the disciples got hungry. They plucked some heads of grain and started to eat it. You see the response to that in verse number 24 the Pharisees were saying to Him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Whenever you look through the Old Testament Scriptures, they really weren't breaking any Old Testament law. The only thing that the Old Testament prohibits when it comes to the Sabbath that would fit in this specific situation is harvesting. And the disciples certainly weren't harvesting, just plucking heads of grain one at a time and eating them as they walked. What Jesus' disciples were breaking, though, was the oral laws of the Pharisees. See, many rabbis, Jewish rabbis, viewed the Old Testament as being very vague about what you could do and what you couldn't do on the Sabbath day. And so they made all of these oral laws. They put all of these restrictions about what you were allowed to do and what you weren't allowed to do on the Sabbath. They built a hedge around the law. They added on top of the law. Eventually those oral laws are, are put together in a book in the second century called the Mishnah. And they accepted these oral laws as being just as authoritative as what God had revealed throughout the Old Testament Scriptures. What God had revealed in the Old Testament law. And so here the disciples are not breaking the Old Testament that God had delivered, which Jesus and His disciples were living under at this point, they were breaking the traditions, the oral laws of the Pharisees. Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? How does Jesus respond? Look at His question in verse 25. These first four words, have you never read? When do mistakes happen? When do we make mistakes Spiritually. We make mistakes spiritually when we don't read. Whenever we don't consult the Word of God. Whenever we don't see what the Word of God has to say about a particular subject or a particular situation. And so Jesus goes back to the Word of God. Specifically, it's a, it's a story that takes place in 1 Samuel 21 where David and his men did break the law of Moses. 
And I think basically one of the things that Jesus is wanting to communicate, the question that he's wanting to ask is, hey, look at this story in 1 Samuel 21. David and his men broke the Old Testament law, but you're not saying anything about that. But then as soon as we break your traditions, you jump all over us. Can you see the problem there? Oh, your hero David, he broke the Old Testament law, but, but we won't mention that. When we break your traditions, you jump all over us. Have you not read about this? Jesus wants to make a point in 27 that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Man wasn't created to fit the Sabbath. The Sabbath was created for the needs of man to give them rest on the seventh day in the Old Testament time. And so Jesus makes a powerful point in verse number 28 that the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. According to the Jewish religious leaders of the time, who was the Lord of the Sabbath? It was God. So what's Jesus telling them? I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I am equal to God. And then you have another Sabbath day. Picking up in chapter 3 and verse number 1 where Jesus enters the synagogue and there was a man who had a withered hand. And in verse number 2, the Bible says that the religious leaders were watching Jesus to see whether He would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse Him. Again, another oral law that they had passed down about the Sabbath is that you could heal somebody if it was a life-threatening situation. You could help somebody medically if they had some kind of emergency that was threatening their life. You could do that on the Sabbath, but if it wasn't life-threatening, then you had to wait until the Sabbath was over. And so here's a man with a withered hand. They know what Jesus is about. They're sitting and watching. They're waiting for Jesus to heal this man so that they might point their fingers at Him, so that they might accuse Him. What did Jesus do? Did that intimidate Jesus? No, Jesus calls the man with the withered hand over to Himself in verse number 3. He heals the man's withered hand. And He wants to make the point that it's never unlawful to do good. It's never unlawful to meet somebody's needs. It never goes against God's will to serve somebody else. Jesus makes that point to them. He heals the man of his withered hand. And in verse number 6, this is what the text crescendos to. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus how they might destroy Him. This is where it begins. We're going to see this build throughout Mark and ultimately come to a head as we come to the end of the Gospel. At this point, they begin making plans. After all of these questions, after all of these complaints, they make plans to destroy Jesus and to get rid of Jesus. Why are you doing what is not lawful? You ever heard somebody make that complaint? Have you ever made that complaint yourself? See, it's not even a question that we have to do things in a biblical way. We have to do it according to the law that we have received in the pages of the New Testament. But sometimes we're like the Pharisees. Sometimes we want to build a hedge around the law. Sometimes we want to add on top of the law. We make our own rules. We make our own traditions. We make our own commands. But then we don't stop there. We take our own rules and commandments and traditions and we enforce those on other people. When people break our traditions, when people break the commands that we have come up with, we look at them and we ask this question, why, why are you doing what's not lawful? 
Why are you breaking God's law when in reality all that they're breaking is the laws that we have made? How should we respond to it? We need to recognize the difference between the two. Jesus did. Jesus drew a line between what was written in the pages of God's Word and the oral laws, the oral traditions that were passed down through the rabbis. We need to recognize the difference between the two. The difference between tradition and command. The difference between inspiration and tradition. We need to be very careful not to add on top of God's law. Revelation, the 22nd chapter, warns us against that. Don't take away from the words of this book. Do not add to the words of this book. We need to be very careful that we're not doing that whenever we handle the pages of God's holy word. Why are you doing what is not lawful? We need to be very careful when we ask that question and make a distinction between inspiration and tradition. Can you see how the religious leaders are standing opposed to Jesus? The complaints that they offer? Can you see how those complaints are not unique to them in their time? But it's something that we can see in our world today. Jesus, can you really forgive sin? Why do you associate with those kind of people? Why don't, why don't you do what everyone else does? Why are you doing what is not lawful? We come to the end of this text and maybe we're thinking, so what? That's the complaints that they made back in this time. Maybe I see some relevance in our world today, but what difference does this make in my life? Well, very quickly, let me suggest to you two big ideas. Number one, don't be the one to make these complaints. Be very careful about the complaints that you offer. Don't be the one who complains against Jesus like the Jewish religious leaders did. And then when these complaints surface, which they inevitably will, respond to them in the way that Jesus did. Have the heart of Jesus. Have the love of Jesus. Uphold truth just like Jesus did. Really, that's what we want to be as Christians, right? We want to be and we want to respond to every situation like Jesus. May we respond to these complaints in the same way that Jesus did. We've been talking about the complaints of the religious. Can I tell you something that we should never complain about? And something that God Himself will never complain about? And that is uniting in relationship with Him. Being buried in the waters of baptism for the first time. Coming back to Him, if I'm living a life separated from Him, maybe that's a step you need to take tonight. We want to give you this opportunity to take that step in faith as together we stand and sing.